The Causeway of Try, a pre-Sven Kingdom's long short story noveletta, by Angus Rorison, read by the author. Chapter 1. Young Bob the Great. Two thousand years ago, that is, about a thousand years before the magnificent Sven conquered and tamed the land, ridding it of all barbarians and many beasts, there was another. A mighty warrior feared and famed from coast to coast and back again. One who, even though he was only twenty-five and a quarter years old, had led his armies across the breadth of the continent in a merciless tirade of triumph. He was known as Young Bob, for his name was Bob, and he was young. Cities, kings and queens cowered before him, submitting to his will. They really did have to cower, as Bob was not a tall man. At fourteen years of age, he had been of good height for his age, but as his peers grew in stature, he did not. He only grew in ambition. He was not destined to be a king, but king he did become, and, in time, emperor. As he was camped outside the once mighty city of Dinar one warm night, he spread maps before him and his generals. Mind out, will you? he barked at one unnaturally tall commander. You're in my light! The light in question came not from candles or lamps, but from the burning of the once mighty city of Dinar. Its citizens fled as the flames engulfed their homes in Bob's latest display of his savage power. What, you may ask, had been their crime? What utterances had so irked the emperor as to unleash such punishment on the city? Surely it had been something so utterly reprehensible as to cause the conflagration now consuming their commune. It was simple. Faced with Bob and his entourage, the elders of the great and lavish city of Dinar presented themselves. Bob was to demand the surrender of the city to his superior army. A courtier stepped forward and in a loud and proud voice spake thusly. Behold, Bob the Great, conqueror of all the lands betwixt all four shores of the known world, bow down before him and... Bob silenced his spokesman with a wave of his hand. Something had occurred that had caught his magisterial attention. Which one of you dared to chortle? he demanded. The Dinar representatives looked nervously from one to the other. They had no personal experience of this marauder, but they had heard rumours of his merciless temper. One pointed to the other, and the other pointed to another, until eventually their fingers aligned on one man at the front. Despite the situation, he had a slight smirk upon his face. No, no, really, it's, it's nothing, the man protested. No, no, countered Bob. If you've something to share with the group, then we'd all like to hear it. I'm, I'm sure nothing was meant, tried another of the Dinar elders. He was stopped by a sharp look from Bob. Look, OK, it's nothing really, really. I mean, sputtered the accused. But with another look from Bob, he felt compelled to continue. He sighed. 
Well, really, I mean, I was just thinking, you're this great emperor and all, and we didn't know which one was you. And, pressed Bob, well, Bob the Great, I just expected you to be taller is all. Right, that's it, shouted Bob. The Dinar congregation flew into panic. They protested, they pleaded, they shoved the miscreant to the fore, begging Bob to take him, insisting that he did not represent their views in any shape, manner or form. But it was too late. Burn it! Destroy this petty city! screamed Bob, turning on his heels and departing the way he had come. The elders of Dinar fell to their knees in vain. Bob had been insulted and there was no way back for them. This is why the Great One did not need candlelight that night in order to read his map. But the story does illustrate why he needed someone to move so that he could receive that light. Short he may have been, but he refused to let that handicap him in any manner. His father had been deaf and one-legged, and that had not stopped him overthrowing tyrants to make himself king, so Bob was not going to let being five foot two get in the way. The flames of Dinar flickered light across his map, and he thoughtfully fiddled with his favourite new jewelled dagger. His generals and advisers leaned in, being careful not to overshadow him or the map. At last, he filled the moment with speech. What, he asked, pointing with his dagger, is that? He slammed down the point of the dagger onto the westernmost edge of the map. General Genikos, a wise old soldier who had served his father for decades before him, moved closer, bringing out a looking glass to aid himself. Uh, that, my king, is the city island of Try. Try? quizzed Bob. Try? And why have I never heard of this place? Why does it not genuflect before me in obedience? Uh, well, began Genikos, wondering how to put it delicately. Try is, um, he stroked his small beard. Mm, tricky. Yes, uh, that's a word for it. You see, it has been there since, uh, nay, before recorded time began. It's only a quarter of a mile from the shore, yet none have succeeded in breaching its walls. Then I shall, well, Majesty, I, I would advise against it. it. It really is of no consequence. No consequence? Is it not of this world? Genikos had to agree that it was actually part of the known world, such as it was known back then. Well, then it shall be mine! Bob the Great had spoken. Bob's word was law. Chapter 2. Fiona the First, Founder of Try. It's true, Try was a tricky place. It had remained independent ever since Fiona the First had landed there. Not that she'd actually wanted to land there. She had been taken on a sailing lesson by her father. Fiona was the ninth daughter of her father, a once wealthy merchant. His wealth had leaked from him gradually as one daughter after another had been married off. Each had commanded a dowry, a gift of money and goods to the new husband's family. Her father, driven to distraction through the worry around the weddings, had decided enough was enough. He simply couldn't afford to let Fiona wed. She was placed in a small training boat 
and he towed her out to sea before encouraging her to raise her sail as he had done his. She pulled on the rope, expecting eight feet of cloth to unfurl and be filled with wind as had her father's. No such luck. Her sail was naught but a torn rag, fuller of holes than the infamous cheese made by her eldest sister's husband, Tony. Her father sailed effortlessly across the bay, zigzagging expertly across the wind towards home, whilst she drifted perilously west. As luck would have it, she did not drift far. The tide took her to an island. A desultory, overlooked piece of volcanic rock a quarter of a mile from the shore. The next day rumours were rife that a devil had inhabited the rocky island offshore, and the eagle-eyed could spot said devil attempting to communicate with the town via signals that could only be taken as insults of the very worst kind. Ones that questioned the genetic inheritance of those watching, or suggested that they indulged in the most unclean practices, possibly even being far too friendly with an array of common farm animals. This continued for a few days until one brave sailor ventured close enough to check out the devil. Of course, what he found instead was a furious but attractive young lady. When encouraged to return to the mainland, she declined, instead insisting that she would set up her own town on the island and taunt all those who came near her without invite. And so it was that Tri was founded, becoming a rich sea-trading city. Anyone with the right skills and ambition flocked to the new place and was welcomed by Fiona I. She insisted on being called Mayoress, not Queen. And ever since, it has usually been a woman who has led the people of Tri, encouraging their strange traditions and ways and fighting off invaders with harsh words or, if necessary, harsh weaponry. Five hundred years later... Chapter 3. Bob Tries There was nothing particularly remarkable about the day. The Sears had noted no weather events that were propitious, and it could not have been said to be a beautiful day, but nor was it overcast or wet or cold. It just was. One thing Bob's Sears had done was to slaughter a pig and check its entrails for omens. Bob was keen to get on with the day's invading, seeing as he could see his prey just offshore. Well, well, he impatiently prompted. The three seers, two elder and one apprentice, shifted uneasily and looked at each other, all hoping the others would speak first. To be honest, they had seen nothing in the arrangement of guts that had been spilled. Usually they prompted each other and just made it up, talking about the particularly entwined nature of the innards. However, this time... The intestine was not sitting on top of the kidneys, and there was little or nothing special about the liver. It all just sat and steamed. The elders glared at the apprentice. The apprentice's name was Zeba. Everyone called him Bidoop, because that's where he came from. It was because they couldn't pronounce his surname. He had been captured as a slave after his town was ransacked, but due to some skill with medicinal herbs, he had ended up with the seers. He shrugged, thinking he really shouldn't be there. He'd requested a course on scatomancy, not this. 
He was far more interested in telling the future through observing poop than guts. But, unfortunately, his professor had fallen into quicksand the previous week and vanished before his first proper lesson was scheduled. Unlike the others, he had not had enough life experience to be scared of young Bob, and he certainly didn't feel any loyalty to the small emperor, seeing as he was hundreds of miles from his home and what may have been left of his family. So he launched into an improvised response. When a tide turns, it signifies your greatest moment, O oh great emperor, he began. Bob looked interested. The elder seers looked taken aback at this turn of events. They encouraged him with wide eyes and a slight wave of the hand. Uh, the enemy are weakening by the hour. Restlessness grows within their walls, and they will soon surrender to your mightiness. Ah, good, offered Bob, nodding his head. There was a pause. Any more? he asked. Ah, oh, uh, yes, continued the apprentice in absence of any contribution from the others. And if they offer resistance, it shall be overcome. A show of force will lead to defections. Hmm, murmured Bob, staring at the ex-pig laying at his feet. The apprentice realised that he had not made reference to the guts. He prodded it with a stick. See how the gizzard slips easily across the esophagus there? This is a sure sign of victory. But... He moved aside an intestine. Yes, he muttered ominously. Action must be taken swiftly. If there's no surrender by nightfall, there could be trouble. The gods will not be patient. He looked up hopefully at his emperor. Bob was nodding profusely. He turned to his generals. Well, well, he snapped. What are we waiting for? You heard the man. Move it. Prepare my boat. I will go and demand their city as forfeit. Jinnikos didn't quite understand the bit about forfeit as no related consequence had been mentioned, but he was used to such tiny confusions of speech from his master. He barked orders and followed the Great One to the shore. Bob, Jinnikos and Cedric the spokesman, chosen for his loud voice, boarded the small vessel along with a dozen soldiers and the slaves were ordered to row the quarter mile to try. The city was surrounded by a high and thick wall which came almost up to the edge of the sharp rocks that were its home. Bob and his entourage sailed up to a deserted jetty in front of a huge gate which was the height of at least seven men, or women. Everyone had retreated inside the city, leaving the usually bustling piers and jetties in ghostly silence. Cedric stood up. He was very tall and thin which was another factor that helped him to project his voice all the way to the top of the city's ramparts. Hear ye, hear ye, hailed Cedric. In the name of Bob the Great, I demand an audience. His voice bounced off the sheer stone wall in front of them for a few seconds before a head appeared, then two hands. The head leaned over. What? I said, hear ye, hear yes, yes, all right, I heard you the first time. I meant what, as in what do you want? We're a bit busy at the moment. Bob, Cedric and Jenikos exchanged bemused looks. To Bob's ears, it was verging on impertinence. Cedric was about to holler again when the figure at the top spoke first. Look, just let us know what you want and make it quick, okay? 
You've turned up at rather an inopportune moment, see? Today's a holiday day. We all get a late morning lion. In fact, I've been up since dawn while we're taking first watch and all, and I'm just about to go off and have my breakfast with the missus, and then have my kip, so if you wouldn't mind... This had the effect of flicking a switch in Bob's mind. He took it as cheek. He didn't like cheek. He wasn't used to it, and he wasn't going to stand for it. He stood up and marched to the prow of the boat. Listen here, you. You listen to me and you listen good. I am Bob, Bob the Great, and I am here. You what? called the figure from above. Speak up, mate. I can't hear a thing. Hang on. He disappeared, and a short while later, three more heads popped over the ramparts. Now, say it again. Let's see if anyone else gets it, cried the first man. Bob shook with indignation. I am Bob the Great, and I demand... No, no called out the four above him. Let the other guy have a go, he's louder. Bob stamped his foot, shook his fist and slammed a knife into the side of the boat, but to no avail. He had to leave it to Cedric to continue the attempt at conversation. Cedric steeled himself. Bob the Great and his armies have conquered lands on all four corners of the known world and four? Did you say four? I mean... It's pretty cornery if you travel all the way around it. I'd say four is a severe underestimation, said a voice from above. And what about the other lands far across the sea? There's plenty there, added another. Hang on, said the original voice. Who's this Bob character you keep going on about? Bob bristled. I am Bob, he yelled. Silence. The four figures leaned over. They mumbled to each other. One pointed. Did you say you're Bob? asked one. Yes, for Zoon's sake, cursed the great one. And what do you do then? asked another. Bob was infuriated. He picked up a nearby axe and flung it with all his might at the walled city of Troy. To be fair, he was very strong for a short chap and it bounced along the rocks and clattered against the very bottom of the gate. Ooh, came the voices from above. Temper, temper. Cedric intervened. If you do not surrender your city by nightfall, we shall be forced to take it. By force. Even he had become discombobulated by the teasing and stumbled over his words. Well, it's like I said, said the original voice. We're on holiday, so even if I could find the mayoress, I don't think she'd be in a fit state to organise some sort of surrender. And to be honest, she's never done anything like that before. Tell you what, try again tomorrow, eh? Bob and his boat hot-tailed it back to shore. Mindful of the prophecy that time was of the essence, he barked at his subordinates with extra vigour. He had noted the tall, flat walls of Troy and the sharp rocks upon which the city sat. An aquatically-based invasion was out of the question. Attempting to besiege the city from their boats would be the utmost folly. He could not take his army to try, so he had to try to bring try to his army. The orders rang out through every alley, road and pathway amongst his army's camp. Every man, woman and child of every rank was employed. They were commanded to gather any material they could and throw it into the sea between them and the enemy's stronghold. A causeway was to be built across which his army could march.